Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Here's a little snippet by one of the authors from the anthology. My name is Emily Liebert, and I'm thrilled to have contributed to Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. My essay is called My Father Immortal, and what I really don't have time for is inauthentic people. Daisy Hernandez is the author of The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease. Daisy is a former reporter for the New York Times and has been writing about the intersections of race, immigration, class, and sexuality for almost two decades. She has written for the National Geographic, NPR's All Things Considered, and Code Switch. The Atlantic, Slate, and Guernica, and she's the former editor of Color Lines, a news magazine on race and politics. In addition to her most recent book, The Kissing Bug, Hernandez is the author of the award-winning memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed, and co-editor of Colonize This, Young Women of Color on Today's Feminism. She is an associate professor at Miami University in Ohio. Welcome, Daisy. Thank you so much for coming on Moms No Time to Read Books to discuss The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Daisy, you are a beautiful writer. I know that you know this. I know you've been a reporter forever and a journalist and New York Times and all the rest, but this was like from the first sentence, like beautiful, gripping, great story, really beautiful. So thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. We need readers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, readers. I mean, I know it's called The Kissing Bug, but you also, I mean, it's a family story as well, right? It's about your family and your experience and culture and identity. I mean, it's about a lot of things. So anyway, 
I, you could also call it like, well, anyway, I won't, not that I'm in your marketing department. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I think you, you weave in a lot of facts and figures about disease, uh, under the radar disease that a lot of people don't know about. But the way you paint a portrait of the people, the women, especially in your family, it's just really beautiful. So anyway, why don't you tell listeners your take on your book and what it's about and what inspired you to, to write and research and all that stuff? Yeah. So the kissing bug did start with my family because one of my aunties who was basically like a mother to me, my tia Dora was diagnosed with Chagas disease when I was very young and I was translating for her. I was the first person in my family who was navigating both languages, learning English in kindergarten. And so interpreting for my auntie without really knowing what I was interpreting the way that sort of often happens in immigrant families when immigration crosses with medical care system and and everything else. And so I grew up, this is a chronic disease. It's a parasitic disease. This, This is nothing that I knew growing up. We knew that it was chronic, that there wasn't a cure, that my auntie was going to have this all her life. And, but I also didn't ever think that she was going to die from this disease because I just knew her as having been sick her life, that it almost became just, it was a part of our lives. You know, some years were really good years and some years she was hospitalized for several weeks, sometimes for months. She had different surgeries on and off. And we never met another family who had any knowledge or awareness of this disease. And it's called the Chagas disease, sometimes called also the kissing bug disease in English. And so when she died, it was when, it was several decades later, actually. And it was quite a shock to me that she passed away. And it really... And we had a complicated relationship, as you're alluding to in the book. We had a lot of love and a lot of like misunderstandings, anger. She was, my auntie really had a hard time accepting that I was queer. I think she really thought of me as her daughter and really wanted me to have like the particular, the sort of American dream that she had, which did not include any queer people in it, unfortunately. So we had like just a very loving and also painful relationship. I think it's, it's the right way to say it. And so it was complicated to me that I had so much grief when she died. And, you know, not only did I have grief, but I realized that I didn't understand what this disease was. I just thought it was very rare. And as I began to research, I found out, oh my gosh, there's 300,000 people in the United States with Chagas disease. Those are all people who are like my auntie. They're immigrants from South America or Central America or Mexico. And this disease, you know, this is a parasitic disease. It's transmitted by a kissing bug or a triatomine insect. And it can live, that parasite can live in the body for many years, even up to three decades, very silently before it starts to attack the heart and predominantly it it attacks the cardiac system. And for people like my auntie, a smaller number, it attacks the gastrointestinal system. And so that's why she was having a bunch of surgeries and basically kind of getting treatment over the years. But it's been a neglected disease because it does disproportionately affect not only immigrants in the U.S., but you know, in terms of Latin America, there's about 6 million people who have this disease. And even within Latin America, these are people who usually are coming from very poor communities, rural communities where they would have contact with this insect. So this is not a community that has that many people advocating or, you know, at their behalf, you know, and who don't necessarily have resources. It is also a very, it's oftentimes called a silent and silenced disease in the sense that this is not like Ebola, right? This is not like super visible in the body. And it's also not COVID. It's not like the flu. It's not transmitting very easily between people. So it really gets contained to this community. It's a little bit more like Lyme disease, right? Where you have to have contact with an insect. And so I realized just like, 
oh my God, how are there 300,000 people in this country? Who are they? Are they similar to my family? Are they really different? So I, I basically, you know, I tell other people, be careful what you start to research because <laughs> you will go down that rabbit hole of like wanting to know more and more. And I did. I, so I ended up finding families and finding doctors, a few doctors in the United States who were becoming advocates for their patients. And it was an incredible, it turned out to be a seven year journey of researching, interviewing, traveling across the United States and also traveling back to South America because I had another auntie who I did not spend much time with because she stayed in Latin America, but also was infected with this disease. So talking to my cousins about their mom and losing her at such a young age was really eye-opening for me. So it was uh, quite a journey. (laughs) Wow. And then were you doing your journalist job at the same time? Like for the pay, like was this just something like a passion project on the side? Like how did you weave this into life? Yes. Oh, I love these questions. Logistics. (laughs) Sorry. I'm like, (laughs) no, these are like my favorite questions. I love asking people this and I love being asked as well. So I was actually transitioning from publishing into teaching in higher ed. And so I was doing an MFA program and I was writing actually a short story about a little girl whose mother had Chagas disease. And I realized, wait, that little girl is me. (laughs) I mean, what I was writing was very fictional, but I realized that it was a story about me and my auntie. But no, so I was actually starting this book project as I was starting a career in higher ed. So, you know, what was interesting was that, yes, a lot of times I was like, oh, I'm going to this place for like a job interview. Oh, I also get to interview someone there in that area or, you know, it was great. It was craziness. And then I did end up starting in higher ed. And what was really great about that was that I did get research funding. I got several thousand dollars from my college to be able to go and travel and do interviews. So people ask me like, how did you make time for this? How did you get funding? And I'm like, yes, I was subsidized in some part by my, by my college. You know, I would have done it on my own, but it would have definitely meant using up savings to, 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 to do this. But yeah, I've talked to other people who do this, you know, kind of literary journalism work and we're always double dipping. You know, you go to one city to promote your last book and you're starting your interviews for the next book, which is what a lot of what I did in Los Angeles. And then there were times when I definitely like before I had the financial, the funding from my university, I was just using my own money because as you're saying, I never used the phrase passion project, but (laughs) this was more like I had to do it. You know, it was the Octavia, the writer Octavia Butler has this beautiful essay about positive obsessions. And so this for me was like a positive obsession. And so, yeah, I would have done it either way, but it was, you know, there's a reason it took seven years and not two. (laughs) I was teaching, I was juggling life. (laughs) Those many hats that we women wear. (laughs) I didn't mean it in any sort of negative way to say passion project as if it was like, you know, some fluff thing on the side. I hope you didn't take it that way. No, 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 I didn't at all. No, I just, I realized like, oh, I don't actually use that wording. I'm like, what wording do I use? And I'm like, oh yeah, I use positive obsession. Positive obsession is a good one. Okay. Yeah. If you haven't read that essay by Octavia Butler, I still recommend it. Okay. I'll go do that. One of my favorites of just, you know, we have to get crazy about the stuff we love because otherwise, yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Yeah. You need that fuel though. Otherwise, like it's not worth it. Right. There's like so much competing for time and attention that like, if there's not something really driving you, it's very easy to say, no, thanks. Like, I think I'll pass on that. Yeah. I I oftentimes tell my students, Unless you are J.K. Rowling, like no one is going to give you enough money (laughs) for hours. Like, you know, when you hear about the novelist with the six figure advance, I'm always like, 
trust me, that was not enough money for the many hours, the many years that went into that book. So yeah, you, it has to come from that gut and, and, and community also having, I feel like I also, you know, the moral support, right. Of having good friends and people supporting you when you're like, why am I doing this? Am I crazy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they get yeah. you back on. <laughs> no, I recently started a publishing company called Divi Books and, you know, to combat some of the frustrations that so many authors had, including like I've had, I have books at a number of different houses myself now. I say that so casually as if it's no big deal, but it's like a really big deal for me. But anyway, but as I've like dug deep into how to change that, that and how to like, there is so little money <laughs> In pub, like there are, so, it is so expensive to produce books. I did my first business model, and I was like, "Ah, okay, so <laughs> we'll be losing money for years. Like this is great. Okay, it's just like I see why it doesn't make it better, but there are lots of things stacked against the author. That's all. A lot, yeah. And I think a lot, you know, I remember a friend of mine who used to talk about how much we have to educate readers, and I really believe this. Like we, like a lot of people don't know that publishers you know, they have the books that do really well and those support the books that are not doing so well or that have lower sales. Right. And so every time you buy a book, it does make a difference, you know, but also that there's like, like, as you're saying, there's a model in place to kind of prop up the ones that don't do as well. And, and I think sometimes editors, I think the editors that are really amazing and great are the ones that realize like, okay, this is an important book. Even if it's not going to sell as well as this other book, we still need this and have a commitment and we are, you know, equitable redistribution of resources yes, <laughs> and <exactly. seeing> that happen. <laughs> yes, totally. I'm not giving up on this, by the way. I'm looking for all these <laughs> other revenue streams because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, anyway, I didn't mean to leave it in like a negative way, but look, a lot of books are not, the purpose of some books is not to sell, you know, a million copies, right? Like there's a formula. If you wanted to sell a book, if you, I mean, we're getting totally off topic. I'm sorry. But if you wanted to have a book that sold a million copies, you could probably approach it or analyze what books sell a million copies and why, and then like try to do something like that. And not that that would necessarily work, but I feel like that's not why people write books. I mean, you want your book to do well, but people have to write books that they need to write. Otherwise, they could be doing anything else. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery. Perfect for the whole family. Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. 
That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Absolutely. And also, we don't know what that formula is, you know, for that book that's going to go like, so if we did, we would have a really different situation. But I was just talking with a student yesterday about House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros, which millions and millions and millions of copies and international, so many languages that it's been translated in. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, what formula would have predicted that? You know what I mean? So, I mean, you just look at these, you just look at these books that have become you know, part of, you know, the canon from elementary school through high school and beyond. And you're like, yeah, I don't think that someone could have predicted that. And then in other cases, you know, you look at the kind of financial support that some books get in terms of advertising, in terms of how they're being pushed out. And you're like, well, of course it's going to do a little well, (laughs) like at least a little well, you know, because it's getting so much support, you know, not just the advance that the author is getting, but what's being put into the marketing and how it's being pushed and, and who's talking about it. People also, again, readers, I don't think always appreciate too, because I know I didn't know this is just how much informal marketing and publicity happens. Like who you know, who you're at dinner with, who you're talking about your books. And I'm talking about sort of like people who are editors and on the publishing side, what books they're talking. I mean, all of that is part of it. And that's something like not quite getting, you're getting paid for, they're getting paid for it, but like you as a writer don't know what's happening there. Right. Yeah. So there's uh, so many pieces to this like little monster that we call publishing. It's true. true. Beautiful beast. (laughs) Well, if there's anything that you think is glaringly obvious that you could fix that you know, that you've always thought like, if only this, you know, let me know. Cause I want to try to incorporate okay. some new ideas anyway. Okay. Back to your book. <laughs> so how did your family feel about this? And how did you, when you, especially the, like the queerness parts and, you know, even just the, the parts that would like reveal a lot of the physical struggle, like even not, the, I mean, obviously everybody's fine with it, but your aunt and like how she felt she was pregnant and her body and what that looked like in the colonoscopy bag. And like, you know, just like all these details, right. Of family life and illness and what you go through and like, what was that like? Yeah. Well, my family has not read the book because it's in English and my family only reads in Spanish. And I did not translate it for them because of my experience with my previous memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed, where I did translate certain chapters before they were published. And my mother didn't really want to read it. I think she was, you know, I don't come from a family that sits around reading a bunch of books anyway. (laughs) They weren't like, oh, you're the next big thing, Daisy, or something like that. And my mother, I think actually, I think like it's hard for her. She's somebody who, you know, if it's painful, why are we going to look at it? Why are we going to talk about it or consider it? So I think, you know, at one point I actually tried to read some passages out loud. And this is from a cup of water under my bed. 
And she, she just, she started having like emotions. She was like, oh, okay, that's enough. You know, basically don't read anymore to me. It may, you know, just brings up sadness for her and a lot of feelings. And I realized that, you know, with that memoir, I realized, you know, I'm actually not writing for my specific family members. So like, I don't have to like insist that they read it, that they consume, that they interact with my work. It would be great if they did, but that's just, it was a lot of acceptance. You know, that's just not the relationship we have. That memoir was translated into Spanish. I'm so hopeful this book will also get translated at some point into Spanish, but that book was translated and my mother still didn't read it. My auntie read it and argued with me about certain one of my other aunties and argued about certain parts of it and she's like that's not true that's not the way it happened it happened this way and I was like okay no it didn't but you're entitled to think what you want and so am I you write your memoir which at one point she did start writing her own memoir (laughs) but yeah I you know I think I always tell people you just you if you think you know how your family's going to react I can guarantee that you don't. I have just over the years from different writers heard so many reactions, everything from, I thought my family would flip out to like, oh, actually my family just doesn't even want to read it. Like we always think they're going to be really fascinated. At one point I had my sister read my, this was my, my memoir. And because I wanted to get her take on how, you know, I wanted her to basically be a representative for my parents and aunties who only spoke, only read in Spanish. And she, and she was like, why am I not in it more? Like what happened to the chapter about me? <laughs> you know? So we also think like, oh, our family doesn't want to be in our memoir. No, our family might want to be in our memoir more actually. <laughs> so then you have to like, <laughs> grapple with that question of like, do I want to write a whole chapter about this family member? So you just really do not know. But my, you know, my parents have largely accepted that I'm queer. So I think like when, if and when this book would get translated into Spanish, that wouldn't be a surprise to them. Yeah, I don't know how they, I don't know, actually, I have no idea how they would react. I mean, I think they're very, they're very proud of me. Like they see this as part of my work life, which is really so separate from the relationship that we have. And so they're just like, oh, you did good work. That's, that's a really good thing. And they're they're definitely really aware because part of working on this book, what was so intense is that as I was discovering more about the disease, so was my family. And I was mm-hmm. sharing this with my family. So we did not know, for example, about congenital chagas, which is that this parasite can transfer from a mother to baby during pregnancy. I like believe the virus. that when you said that. I yeah. Agree. Yeah. My family was learning as I was learning. So they also learned with me about congenital chagas, about this, the parasite being able to jump from mother to child during pregnancy, like the Zika virus. So, so I think my family did really a deeply appreciate how much they were learning about the disease, because even in all those many, many years in the United States, we never had a doctor who explained to us anything about the disease. My auntie never saw an infectious disease specialist in the United States. Like she was basically being managed for the impact that the parasite had on her body, but not actually working with an infectious disease specialist. And we didn't know. I had no idea. We we all grew up without health insurance. We only saw doctors when it was an absolute emergency. So we didn't even know, you know, people say, what are the barriers for immigrants who have this disease in the United States? And the list is so long, you know, beginning with, do you have healthcare and do you have access to healthcare? But also, even if you were to have healthcare, if you don't know what an infectious disease specialist is, you wouldn't even ask for it, right? Like you don't even know what questions to ask to start with. So there's so many barriers, you know, just across the healthcare system when it comes to immigrants and, and this particular disease, but also others. Wow. Well, at least, I mean, we got off track. 
your question, but it was a really good question. No, no. I just, I feel like, you know, I didn't know much about this disease before and I feel like you're just shining a light on it is going to help a lot of people and maybe somebody tells somebody and maybe something gets diagnosed and, you know, all of that is like, this is how it starts. You have to get the information out there. I hope so. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. So when you're not researching rare diseases or not so rare diseases, <laughs> like what's your life like? Are you still teaching? Like what is you, what is like, what are you going to do the rest of today? I am teaching. Yes. So what I'm doing with the rest of my life is yes. Well, we're in, we're like almost halfway through the semester, which is really strange right now and back in person. And so what am I doing? I'm grading student work. I am writing a recommendation for a graduate student so that they will hopefully get an award. (laughs) Um, I am trying to, I'm actually trying to dedicate one day a week to my own creative work because I I really burnt out last year, actually. Last year, yeah, COVID is messing up everyone's time, but I burnt out last year. And so, and I, I looked at what I was doing with my life and I realized I was working a lot of weekends. I was working a lot of evenings. You know, I had just every, you know, my work had seeped into every corner of my life. So, so I'm, tr- I'm putting in a lot more boundaries I, than I've ever had probably before. So that is what I am doing. Um, and then I also have a new puppy. So Aww. not a new puppy. I have a puppy <laughs> who is new <laughs> to me, I guess. And so I'm, so I'm supposed to be training her and doing other fun things like playing. We play ball, catch. <laughs> I'm so bad at dog training. I am just the worst. I try, I read the things. One, every so often I have like someone come and teach me and I'm like, and I just stand there. I'm like, I can't like stand here and like do this exercise where the dog walks like five feet to me <laughs> over and over. I have like no patience. And so I don't know, I'm just terrible. It, it is astonishing that any of us get to adopt dogs without like without us being trained. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. this is like, you know, my sister had a baby two years ago and it's like, that is crazy. Like they just let you leave with the baby. <laughs> they leave the baby. hospital with the baby. Babies, and, I feel like I have an instinctive, like I know oh, what to do with babies, dogs. I mean, I have a dog now, but <laughs> I, I just, I don't even know. My first dog I got from a pet store. I was like, how cute. And I like bought her. Anyway, I didn't know what I was doing. It was terrible. <laughs> I know. I'm I love that. I know what to do with the human baby, the no. puppy. Yeah. No, it, no uh, instincts, none. I think, I think it's just, we always need community, right? Like we need people guiding us, you know? Yes. Very true. Um, okay. What advice would you have for aspiring authors? Oh, goodness. My advice is always what Toni Morrison said, which is that she wrote the book that she needed to read. Mm-hmm. That's how she f- wrote her first novel. And when I heard her say that, that has just uh, stayed with me, inspired me. It's kind of like the touchstone. That's what I always come back to. And that's always what I tell writers. What should you be working on right now? The essay, the poem, the magazine article, the book, the project that you need yourself. Mm -hmm. Like um, it does not work. It never works if you think you're doing it for someone else. Or I come across writers who are like, doing the project that I think is going to earn them a lot of money. I'm like, "Mm, there's just not enough money in the world (laughs) for everything they get to put into it. So I really, that's always my advice. It's like, get clear on what it is that you need. And that will just, that will like open doors that will like make things clear about what you need to say no to and what you need to say yes to. If you're clear about what you need yourself. That's a good advice on a lot of levels. (laughs) 
yeah, yeah, it applies to other parts of life as well. Yes. <laughs> I just would take a minute, you know. Anyway, yeah. awesome. Well, Daisy, it was so nice to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on and talking. I know we didn't even like talk too much about this, but I had the best time chatting with you about <laughs> the kissing bug and the, your true story of family and insect and a nation's neglect of deadly disease. Everyone should be aware of this disease and also read Daisy's story. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Nice chatting with you. Bye. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.